we are continuing our series today called Out of My Control, and this week as I was thinking about and preparing for this message, I was thinking over some of these things that are out of our control, and we have a joke on staff here about the weather because every time we need the weather to do one thing, it does the opposite. This was never more true for us as a church than over this winter. I don't know if you were paying attention, but it only ever snowed this winter on a Friday night right before our youth ministry or on a Saturday night into Sunday morning right before church. There were no Tuesday snowstorms this winter. Those were canceled. All your kids still went to school. It was only weekend snowstorms, even to the point where the day of my wedding, I woke up to like five inches of snow, had to shovel my car out before I could go get married. I had no control over the weather. I was joking with Joey, our youth pastor, this last week because it has rained for the last six Fridays in a row. All our kids want to do is go play wiffle ball, and we can't because it keeps raining on Friday. We'll have 90-degree weeks and a rainy Friday. We just have zero control at this church over the weather. I don't know about other churches, but at this church, we can't control the weather. If you know me, you know I have a little bit of an unhealthy obsession. Some might call it an addiction. It's not an addiction. I'm getting help. To something that um, is very near to my heart. It's called Star Wars. I love Star Wars a whole lot. And maybe you don't know this about me, but I really hate the new Star Wars movies. And I'm not trying to upset anyone, but 7, 8, 9, I really, I can't stand them. I, I really, really hate them. And uh, I saw a comment online this week that said, no one hates Star Wars like Star Wars fans. And it's true. Like, we just have the most toxic traits. And um, it was funny because last week, we were sitting in the conference room, me and the band, we were hanging out between 9.30 and the 11.30 service. And we were just screaming about Star Wars, not at each other. We were not arguing, we were all in agreement. yet we were still just yelling about all the things we can't stand about Star Wars, yet we love Star Wars so much. And it was funny because we were talking and arguing as if we had some kind of control over the decisions that are made at Lucasfilms. Like we're, we're sitting in a board meeting of executives. No, like we have zero control over anything that happens in Star Wars, yet we we're struggling and fighting and arguing over it. It was funny. Andrew was like trying to make sure that none of us like threw a punch at each other. It was, it was very, very comical. And while that was kind of a dumb conversation of a few guys who like Star Wars too much, there are some real things in our lives that are completely out of our control, that we have no power at all to change. Last week, if you were here for week one of our series, Doug brought out this big whiteboard, and on it he had drawn a box and within the box, he put a bunch of phrases or topics, and those things that were within the box are things that are in our control. And then on the things outside of the box, there were things that were out of our control. Now, some of those things that were out of our control were really good things that we should be glad are out of our control. Things like God's love, things like salvation, that we have no power in ourselves to change. God loves freely because he is the love by which he loves us. God gives his salvation as a free gift to all who put their faith in Jesus. You and I have no power to change that, and thank God we have no power to change that. Yet there are other things that were on that board that are really difficult to come to terms with that we have no control over. And one of those things on the board was that we cannot control how other people treat us. You and I, we cannot control how other people treat us. We sure wish we could control how other people treat us because then it, life would be great. We would be sitting on thrones, being fammed by palm leaves, being fed grapes. It would be awesome. But the truth is we have no control over how people treat us. And all of us in the room or watching online or, or listening back to this know what it is like to be mistreated by someone. 
We know what it is like to be mistreated by a friend or a family member, a spouse, a coworker, just a stranger in traffic. Like we know what it's like to be mistreated. And I think most of us have come to the general realization that it's out of our control, that we cannot control the way people treat us. Like, I don't think many of us are sitting at home devising ways to scheme up how to control the people around us. That's called manipulation. Don't do that. Like, we are not, most of us are not very manipulative people, but we've recognized that we cannot control the way people treat us. Unfortunately, it's not a very satisfying answer to the question. Like, just recognizing that we are out of control of how people treat us is not very satisfying. I think it's only really half the answer to the problem. Last week, Doug talked about how there are many things in our life that are out of our control, and the answer to that is to give control back to God, to recognize that God is in control of all things, and so we can trust him with control, even those things that we can't control. And I think that's a huge aspect to this, is recognizing that even though we can't control how people treat us, we will give control over to God, we will trust him to be who he says he is, but I still think There is something God wants to show us and teach us in these moments where we feel mistreated, where we are suffering at the hands of other people, when we are in conflict with those around us. There is something God wants to show us in our response. Maybe you've realized today that you don't have control over how people treat you, but you're realizing that you give too much control to how people treat you, that that you give too much control to people's perception of you. Some of us in the room today, everything that we do, every accomplishment, every achievement, everything we're working toward is to gain the approval or praise of someone else. Some of us are still reeling from the hurts of other people, uh, the words that have been spoken over us, the things that have been done to us 5, 10, 15 years ago. We're still working through some of that hurt. Others of us have grown bitter and hateful in our heart, not just towards the people who have hurt us, but now it's expanded even to other people who haven't even really mistreated us, but we've grown so bitter that our outlook on the people around us has grown so negative. Maybe today it's time to realize that we're really bad at responding to mistreatment. We're really bad at responding to suffering or conflict. You ever respond to mistreatment and just make it worse? I've been there a million times where, where instead of taking a step back, instead of calming down or taking a second to pray, you just kind of make the situation way worse. You respond out of your flesh or out of anger or defensiveness and all of a sudden the situation has just gotten so much worse. That's because the human response to conflict is usually more conflict. The human response to being attacked is to get defensive or um, to give some sort of payback or revenge when relationships get difficult, our response is to jump ship and leave. Maybe it's time to recognize that we are really bad at responding to mistreatment, to conflict, and it's time to see what God has for us in these moments. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm really glad that you're here with us or you're joining us online, and it's my hope, one, that you're tracking with us today, like you kind of probably see just as well as the rest of us that There's no control that we have over the way people treat us, that we will be mistreated by people sometimes. And I hope you'll see two things today. First, that God's way for us to respond to mistreatment is so radically different than anything that you'll find across the rest of the world. You can look and look, but I don't think that this kind of response that we're going to see today is common anywhere else. And second, and more importantly, what I hope you'll see today is that there is a hope offered to you by Jesus that far outweighs and transcends the troubles of this world. So what we're doing today 
So we're going to look at some verses from 1 Peter and also from Romans. And these passages are super practical. They're teachings from Peter and Paul about mistreatment, about suffering and conflict. And there is an important distinction that has to be made because some of these verses that we're going to look at today deal with just general mistreatment, general conflict, like, for example, in Romans. But in First Peter, Peter has something very specific in mind. He has a very specific kind of mistreatment in his head, and it is persecution. Now, persecution in the context of the Christian faith is mistreatment that Christians endure on the basis of their faith in Jesus. So when a person is being persecuted, they're being mistreated or they're suffering at the hands of someone else because they are a follower of Jesus. And persecution has become this somewhat contentious topic in our culture because there have been two extremes that cropped up. And, and I, I'm going to point out these extremes not to at anybody or come at someone, but to really say maybe we could land somewhere in a healthy middle. See, one extreme that has cropped up when it comes to persecution is this idea that we as North American Christians really have no idea what persecution is and could, therefore could never actually endure persecution. See, this idea comes from looking at passages in the New Testament where Christians endured very extreme persecution. In the New Testament, in the first century, Christians were imprisoned, they were beheaded, they were stoned to death, they were boiled alive, they were hung on crosses, they were brutally murdered for following Jesus. And there are people who have seen that and then see the plight of Christians in other areas of the world and say, yes, that is real persecution because there are Christians in other areas of the world where it is illegal to be a Christian, it is illegal, illegal to meet or own a Bible or own a piece of Christian literature. It is, um, it, people are being carted off to jail for their faith in Jesus. There are Christians being beheaded and murdered in heinous ways right now because of their faith in Jesus. And our response to that should be respect, it should be reverent, it should be a desire to care for and support those Christians. Our hearts should break over the brothers and sisters who are losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. Yet, I do not think that it excludes any possibility of persecution here in our social context. I think that those who tend to go to that extreme, while I'm sympathetic towards their, their ideas about persecution in other countries, I do not think it excludes the possibility of persecution here in our country, in our context. The other extreme that I've seen people go to is not where nothing is persecution, but everything is persecution. Like you get cut off on the LIE, you're being persecuted. And obviously, I'm kidding, but there are some, and I've seen it and I've heard it, whether online or in conversations where some Christians are attributing persecution to things that have nothing to do with their faith in Jesus. Things like their political views or who they voted for or where they stand on a social issue. And I'm not saying that you weren't mistreated for that. Like if you've undergone mistreatment for your opinion or mistreatment for where you land politically, that's wrong. I'm not saying that, that you haven't been mistreated or that, that it isn't a problem. But what I am saying is it's not necessarily persecution because persecution is on the basis of our faith in Jesus. And I do think that persecution happens here all the time. I used to work for Starbucks, the coffee chain, and I was super vocal about my faith when I was there, and it was amazing. I had awesome conversations with customers. I had awesome conversations with uh, coworkers, managers. I used to invite them to church. They used to come. It was great. But for every one of those conversations, there were really difficult conversations 
where it was more than just challenging or asking questions, where it ventured even to being attacked verbally or, or being mistreated in the workplace, where, where I really recognized, like, this is a form of kind of social, interpersonal persecution. I was not, I didn't lose my job. I wasn't going to jail. I was not being physically threatened in any way. But interpersonally, I was experiencing and seeing a level of Social persecution, if I can call it that. Me and my wife, we lead the college community group, and many of the college students in our group go to secular schools uh, right here on Long Island, and they've come to us upset and hurt and confused over things that professors have said to them or about them or about Christians in the classroom, things that classmates have said or done, signs that have been posted in their face while they're walking around on campus. This kind of interpersonal social persecution does happen in our context. And I actually think, interestingly enough, the verses that we're going to look at in First Peter are so applicable to those of us in a more social context. Like some of these verses and some of the things Peter is going to say aren't super helpful if you're being dragged by your hair into prison. Like, like some of the things Peter is going to say just aren't very helpful for that person. There are other passages that talk to that. I think what Peter is going to talk about is really applicable for those of us in a more interpersonal, social persecution context. And this is what he says in 1 Peter 3, chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 13. He says, who then will harm you if you are devoted to doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So he starts here with a rhetorical question. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to doing good. And his point is kind of basic here. If you are devoted to doing what is good, you will avoid a lot of mistreatment. You will avoid a lot of that suffering. But, but that doesn't rule out all suffering. You might say, hold on, Joe. Like, I'm pretty devoted to doing what's good. Like, I make a, first good, I make a good first impression. Like, like, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good woman. Like, no, no, you're not going to avoid all mistreatment. I think you might avoid some. But he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. I think that we will still suffer and find mistreatment, even if you are devoted to good. I think of the example of Jesus who was devoted to good to a level that you and I could never comprehend or achieve. He was blameless to a point that we could never even scratch the surface of an idea of a fraction of how good and blameless Jesus was. Yet this is a, an individual that was killed by the very people he came to save, hated by the very people he loved so well. See, sometimes, even in the midst of righteousness, we will endure mistreatment. And he says that we will be blessed for that. I really think God has blessing for those who count the righteousness and the goodness and the love of God to be more important than their current state of suffering, to be more important than the mistreatment that they might endure. He commands us, do not fear. Did you know that the command, do not fear, do not be afraid, is the most commonly used command in the Bible, and it is because God's people are not to be a people of fear. We are not to be a people characterized by fear, not the fear of conflict or persecution or what other people think of us, but a people of hope. The people of God are a people of hope, a people whose hope doesn't rest in our current situations or the way people treat us, but in the finished work of Jesus, 
in the finished work of Jesus, that while we were still sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses, Christ died so that you and I might have life and a relationship in him. We do not fear because that hope, the hope of Jesus is an anchor for us in times of mistreatment. This is why he says, in your hearts, regard Christ as holy. He's saying, instead of focusing on fear, focus your mind on the goodness, the holiness, the work of Jesus. That will be an anchor for you in times of mistreatment and suffering. And then he says, and I think this is so interesting and so important. He says, be ready at any time to give a defense for the hope that is within you. And we need to talk about what this is and more importantly, in some ways, what this is not. Because this is not God's Not Dead. I don't know if you've seen the movie God's Not Dead where the college student stands up to the college professor. It's a great movie, but, but that is kind of really not real life. Like, I don't think that you are going to be called upon to give an ontological explanation of the existence of God. Like, I just don't think that it's very common for that to happen to most people. It's also pretty daunting, like all these things you'd have to learn and, and understand. No, I'm not saying that you shouldn't Understand what it is you believe and why you believe it. If you know me at all, you know that is something extremely important to me. We have a series here called the Evidence Series. If you've never listened to it, you should check it out. Doug talks about all the reasons why we believe what we believe, the evidence behind our faith. You should know that. You should be able to articulate it. What I am saying is I think there is a much simpler and more effective approach when we are in these interpersonal conflicts when people are questioning us, even attacking us for our faith. And that is to share not the evidence, not the arguments, but the hope. Peter says, give a defense for the hope that is within you. See, I think even when people are attacking us for our faith, whether they realize it or not, what they need to hear is the hope of Jesus. The, the way that Jesus has changed your life, the way that you've seen him change the life of people around you. First of all, can I say this is way less daunting than having to understand and memorize all the arguments and all the evidence. Like I said, that's a good thing. But just being able to share your story, being able to share the gospel is one, so much easier and also so much more effective. And I used to struggle with this all the time because I had, I had it all locked and loaded. I had all the arguments ready. People would come up, ask me questions or approach me at work or, or at school or things like that. And I'd be like, man, uh, boom, uh, trustworthiness of scripture, got it. Or uh, case of the resurrection, got it. Like I was so quick, I had all the arguments ready to go. And guess what? None of those conversations were fruitful. I never won a single person to Christ because of my arguments. And I had to learn kind of the hard way that what people needed to hear, whether they knew it or not, was the hope that I had in Jesus. If you know me, you know I love theology. I love learning. This is not me telling you not to do that. You should do that. It's amazing. But I think what people need to hear most is hope. Continuing on, Peter says this, yet do this with gentleness and reverence. Everyone say gentleness and reverence. He says, yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. When we give a defense, we need to do it in two things, with two things. When we are before people, whether it's an argument or a debate or they're coming at us and attacking us, we need to approach that conversation with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness for the person that we are interacting with and reverence for the God that we're serving in that moment. 
See, it can be so hard to be gentle towards a person, especially when you are being attacked. It can be so much easier to be defensive, to fly off the handle, to escalate the situation. But to respond with gentleness is to respond lovingly, kindly, with grace and mercy towards that other person. That de-escalates. It's so hard to de-escalate a conversation. One of the only ways to do that is to respond gently. To respond with love and kindness and grace for the other person. And I think it's almost impossible to do that on our own without reverence for God. Like we need to have reverence for God in that moment if we ever have any hope to respond gently. Reverence for God knowing that we are his representative in that moment. Saying things and praying things like, God, not my will be done in this conversation, but your will. Praying things in that conversation to yourself like, I may not like this person right now, but I know you love them, God, so help me to love them the way you love them. How about going into a conversation with this mentality? I know that the way I treat this person will affect their view of God going forward. So I need to love them and treat them the way God loves them and treats them because it will affect their view of God the way I treat them. That is reverence for God in the moment. And he, res- he also warns us against responding with evil. He says it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Basically, it's better off that you suffer for your good conduct than for your bad. And he says in this, we kind of remain blameless. Blameless in a few different ways. Blameless in our conscience, like he says. Blameless before God in that moment to say, God, I've, I've done what you've asked of me here. I, I treated this person gently and lovingly the way you would have to remain blameless before God in that moment. And most importantly, I think, to remain blameless in the eyes of others. And you might say, hold on. I thought uh, the kind of the point of this message was not about worrying about what people think, not worrying about what peop- how people treat you, but the truth is we are called to live in a way where we live above reproach, where we live blamelessly in front of the rest of the world. See, if you are a Christian and you are someone who, whose friends and family and coworkers know that you're a Christian, then everything you do, everything you say is a testimony to who God is, is a testimony to who the people of God is. Every word, every response, every action, it is a witness to who the people of God are and who God is. And I'm not saying that that's fair. It sounds a little unfair. I'm not saying that it's fair, but I am saying that it's true. Your life, your words, your response, even to mistreatment, is a testimony to who God is. Imagine with me for a second that you get into some sort of conflict or disagreement with someone at work or at school, and they're clearly in the wrong. They're coming at you. Maybe they're even attacking you for your faith. Everyone can see that they're in the wrong. So you just kind of respond with maybe a snide remark there, maybe a poke at their ego. Maybe a couple days goes by. You just want to tell your friends about what happened. So you're telling your friends what happened. You're you're painting this person in a really bad light, but it's your friends. They get it. Then a couple weeks go by, and your coworkers or classmates are talking about that person. And the second their name comes up, you jump at the opportunity to talk bad about them, to tear them down. Whenever that person walks in the room, you, you're ready to give them the cold shoulder to let them know that, that you don't like them, even if you don't say a word to them. And guess what? That person may have been wrong in every way imaginable. 
but the world is seeing your response to that person. Now to flip that around, if you responded gently and lovingly in the midst of being verbally attacked by someone, if, if every time those people tried to talk bad about them, you ended up jumping to their defense and saying, hey guys, we shouldn't talk bad about this person. Even though they're the one who wronged you, people would see a love and a gentleness and a kindness that is so uncommon in this world. They would know that there's something different about you. They would say things like, man, maybe this Christianity church thing that they keep inviting me to, maybe it is something. Maybe, maybe I do need to check this out. Maybe I do need to accept that invitation to church with them next time. Your gentleness, your devotion to good is a witness to the people around you. I want to switch gears here a little bit as we look at Romans chapter 12. And Paul says this in verse 17. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul here is talking about mistreatment. He's talking about conflict. I don't think he's explicitly talking about uh, persecution, though I think some of this still applies to that. And you'll notice he says a lot of similar things to Peter. He says things like, um, when we're in the face of conflict, uh, do not repay evil for evil. Remain blameless in other people's sight. He uses this phrase, and I think it's really a really cool phrase. He says, do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And I think at first glance, you might ask the question, how do I do what is right in everyone's eyes? Like, doesn't everyone have a different view of what is right, what is wrong? And I think getting at the answer to that question would be to love, to respond gently with kindness and grace and compassion. Like, I don't know a single person who would call that wrong. And honestly, I don't want to meet that person if there is such a person. Like, like I think everyone would agree to do what is right in that moment is to respond gently, with compassion, with grace. And then he takes it a bit further and he says, do whatever it takes to live at peace with those around you. He says, as far as it depends on you. This is not a cop-out. This is not saying like, oh, you know, I did my part, but, but I can't be at peace with everyone because, you know, they don't want to live at peace with me. No, he's saying, as far as it depends on you, as if your life depended on it, do whatever it takes to live at peace with the people around you. Our staff is reading a book. It's called The Peacemaker. And in that book, the author talks about what a peacemaker is, what a person who lives at peace with the people around him, what they do. And a peacemaker is someone who takes very intentional steps to live at peace with those around them. A peacemaker sometimes has to ask for forgiveness, sometimes has to extend forgiveness, maybe have a difficult conversation that you don't want to have Maybe work at restoring a relationship that you never thought would be restored or you have no desire to really restore, but you know God is calling you to. That is what it looks like to intentionally live at peace with those around you. 
And he says, do not seek revenge. And revenge is one of these weird things, right? Because whenever we're in like our right mind, revenge is a very ridiculous thing to pursue. Like I don't think any of us are in our basements like plotting elaborate revenge. Like you got fired from your job and now you want to kill Batman. Like none of us are super villains in the room. But in the moment when you're feeling attacked, it's very easy to want to pay someone back, to want to take a little bit of revenge at them, to act defensively, to respond to a harsh insult with a harsh insult, to pay gossip for gossip. And instead of that, our response should be knowing, Paul says, that God can handle those who wrong us. That God is in control, like we talked about in week one. God can handle those who've wronged us. He is the righteous judge. He is in control. Recognizing that for us, repaying evil for evil only creates more evil. And the only thing that can overcome evil, Paul says, is good. Is looking at your enemy and saying, he's hungry, let me feed him. Responding with the most unbelievable kind of kindness and gentleness and grace, even towards the people that hate us. And you may have noticed up until this point that Peter and Paul are not very concerned with the people who have wronged you. They actually barely talk about the people who mistreat us. Instead, they are much more concerned with how you and I respond to that mistreatment. And it is because one of those things is very much out of our control and the other is very much in our control. See, you cannot control how other people treat you, but you can control how you respond to them. You cannot control how other people treat you, but you can control how you respond to them. That is our bottom line today. And I don't think that that means you just have to walk through life feeling like a doormat, feeling like you just have to take abuse from everyone, that that you just kind of have to let it roll off your shoulder and not care and just always be on and always be responding. Generally, no, no, I think that would be void of any hope. I think there is hope. In a few verses after our passage in 1 Peter, he writes this, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. We have a promise here from God, the God of all grace. He promises to be who he says he is, that he is a restorer, a redeemer, a God who strengthens you and establishes you and supports you even in the midst of your suffering. That is the hope that we can cling to. Our hope is not rooted in how other people treat us. Our hope is rooted in the God who is in control. We have a hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ that we talked about earlier. That we had a broken relationship with God because of our sin and because of our disobedience. And instead of leaving us to our sinfulness, instead of leaving us to eternal punishment, God loved us so much that he would come and die on the cross for our sins and be raised to life so that we might have a restored relationship with him, life eternal with him, and true joy, true hope, and true satisfaction here on this earth. Life eternal is hopeless without the gospel. Life is hopeless without the finished work of Jesus. Let me put it to you like this. People could treat you as amazing as possible. They could treat you as horribly as possible. But life is hopeless without the gospel. Equally hopeless. And by the same token, people could treat you as amazingly as possible. They could treat you as horribly as possible. But you still have hope today because of the gospel. You still have hope today to cling to because God is in control and he is who he says he is. So as we wrap up, I want us to just talk about how we can respond and we can respond to this really in two ways, spiritually and relationally. 
So relationally, just want to recap some of the things that we talked about. I know we, we jumped through a lot, but I want to talk about how we respond in the moment to when we feel mistreated and in conflict, and then how we respond long-term. See, in the moment, we respond gently. We respond with the love and the kindness that God calls us to. But in long-term, we respond by intentionally pursuing peace with others. That means with your friends, with your family, with the people in these seats, with your enemies and those who mistreat you. And I don't know what that looks like to you today. Some of us, maybe God is calling you to restore a broken relationship. I think there are many broken relationships that might exist here in this room. And some of those relationships are so important. Some of those are spousal relationships. Some of those are uh, mother-daughter, mother-son, father-daughter, father-son relationships that need to be restored because those are such important relationships for us. Now, if you've been here for a while, you know that that always comes with a huge caveat. If you are in an abusive relationship, if you are in a dating relationship, a marriage relationship, or some sort of uh, family relationship where you are being abused, we care most, first and foremost, about your safety. If you are in an abusive relationship, please come find one of the pastors after service because we care most about your safety. But I think there are some of us today who God is calling to restore a broken relationship. There are others of us here today where maybe the restoration of a relationship is just not possible, but God is still calling you to pursue peace with that person. I think sometimes we think that peace equals becoming best friends again or, or getting right back to the same relationship. I don't think so. Maybe restoration is just not possible for you right now, but God is still calling you to pursue peace. Maybe that means forgiving them in your heart even though they have never asked you for your forgiveness. Maybe that means just not giving them the cold shoulder while they're around or, or not jumping out every opportunity to badmouth them to other people. I don't know what it looks like, but I do know God is calling each one of us to live at peace with those around us. And then I think spiritually we can respond to mistreatment because mistreatment is a spiritual opportunity to rightly place our hope in God, to remember and reorient that our hope is not in our current situation. It is not in the way that we are treated, but it is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is in the truth that God is in control and you can trust him. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, you've heard a lot about how we can respond to that mistreatment. I hope that you've taken some practical things that you hope to use, but more than any of that, you have heard that there is a hope extended to you by Jesus that while you are alienated from him in your sin, while there's a broken relationship between God and man, he came to restore that relationship and offer you life and hope and satisfaction. And if you want to place your trust in Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. But church, let's remember that we cannot control how people treat us, but we can control how we respond. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word that instructs us, for your word that cuts down to the heart of the issue. God, thank you that your word gives us practical instruction on how to respond to the mistreatment that we face. But God, more than that, thank you that your word reminds us of the hope that we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in you, God, because you are who you say you are. You are the God who restores and redeems and strengthens and establishes. 
So God, I pray that you would be with my brothers and sisters today who are undergoing mistreatment, who are suffering by the hands of others, who are in conflict with others. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give them the grace and the gentleness and the reverence to love on the people who are mistreating them to pursue peace with those who don't even deserve it. If you want to place your trust in Jesus today, you can pray something like this with me. Jesus, I see that in my sin, we had a broken relationship. That in my sin, I was separated from you. That there was no hope for life without you, Jesus. So I pray, Lord God, that you would come into my heart and change my life today. God, I want the hope that you offer. I want the satisfaction and the joy and the new life that you offer. Would you give me that today? By the way, it is not a magical combination of words that saves you, but God sees your heart today. Wherever you're at, God sees your heart today, and he's faithful. So if you prayed that or something like that, or you want to know what comes next, or how to start a relationship with God, I just would encourage you to come find one of the pastors, come find one of us on staff. Maybe reach out online if you're watching this. We would love to come alongside you for what comes next. God, I pray that you would bless each one of us as we are sent out back into the world after this, that you would help us and teach us and instruct us to respond kindly with grace and compassion, to pursue peace with those around us. In Jesus' name.